Sherry, welcome to another episode of the Untoxicated Podcast. Good to have you here with me. Thanks, I'm excited to be here. I am excited that you're here, but I'm even more excited about our guest today. Me too. Hi, Barbara. Hi, guys. Welcome. We're we're super excited to hear your story. But before we get into your story, I have a question for you. I, I know just enough about you know medical practice and and medical traditions to be dangerous but you know quite a bit more about medical stuff than i do the hippocratic oath as i understand the hippocratic oath part of it says that the oath that doctors take says do no harm that's right correct that's part of it that's exactly right yes and you were one of the very rare exceptions to that oath. You were one of the very rare exceptions where doctors intentionally did harm to you, correct? That's exactly correct. All right. Well, we'll get back to that as we get through your story. I just want to leave that, that hanging for our, for our listeners to consider what that might mean. So let's back up toward the beginning. Barbara, tell us about your relationship with your, with your, formerly husband, John, and how'd you meet? Uh, what was drinking like in the early days? We'll turn it over to you. I'd like to hear where, where you'd like to start with the story. Okay, so I would like to begin on April 8th, 1996 at 9 a.m. Now that is specific. Uh, wow. <laughs> I know because I Googled spring forward 1996. Um, that year, uh, I, was in, I was in a situation that I was able to completely ignore the fact that I needed to set my clock ahead that Sunday. Went to work the next Monday uh, and something was wrong. I was supposed to be in my early shift and I realized that everybody was there and I, I thought, something's wrong, what's wrong? I go through, my, I go through the, the, the door at work and somebody said, ooh, look who forgot to set her clock ahead. And I was like, oh crap, I had a temp who was uh, starting that day. Uh, and it was my responsibility. I was late for my temp. So I went running to my uh, desk and there was a, a man standing there facing away from me. And he was right away at my desk. And I had, to, I had to get past him to get to my desk. And anyway, I said, excuse me. And he turns around and our eyes meet and the choir sings. It's funny, I'm, I'm, an, I'm an atheist, uh, uh, but I've often... Described this moment as a a soul recognition. I, I thought to myself, this is going to be something that I don't even have words for yet, um, but I know it's going to be big. Um, so uh, that was so that was day one. Uh, he was my temp. <laughs> so we we worked together. Um, he had just returned from uh, a, a college year uh, in Italy. I was in a relationship that was going badly. It was a very controlling relationship. It was reaching the end stages. Uh, it, it verged occasionally from control to probably abuse. I can look back and see that now. So the year that we spent working together was kind of us building the fortress of, of, uh, of a lifelong affair. Um, we had so many things in common. We were, we were kind of tidally locked, we were just flirting and like developing all of these 
similarities and things that we loved. We were both obsessed with Carl Sagan. We both grew up with, you know, amateur astronomy and loving that and music and travel. He'd, he'd been to Italy at a young age. I took a year in France out of high school. We had all these similarities and it was just, it was just uh, when we finally got together a, a year later, um, I, I told him what my experience was with that first, that first soul recognition moment. And he, he uh, told me that he'd, he'd had the same experience. So it was really, it was really, it was perfect. It was a perfect start. And we moved in together uh, after a little bit more than a year. And it was, we were poor. It was, it wasn't a great job. We were, we were both, we were both, you know, kind of out of the loop of caring too much about finances. Um, we, we moved it together into my 500 square foot apartment, uh, drank a lot and smoked a lot of pot. Uh, he told me one, I remember one sunny Sunday morning over mimosa and marijuana brunch. He told me, God, this is so bohemian. And he was so happy. It was just radiating off him. Like this is, this is what we want. This is exactly our lives together. Mimosa and awesome. marijuana brunch that just rolls off the tongue i like how i mean i don't know why that isn't a more popular thing around it, it was these were extremely good times <clears throat> these are extremely good times for us they were sun, you know this was in california this was sunny sunny gorgeous sundays just just beautiful just just, just kind of kind of idyllic and like i said we weren't really on anyone else's schedule it was kind of the two of us against the world um <laughs> He actually, uh, he bought me a ring the, the first year we were together. Uh, it's kind of a funny story. I, I had lost a ring that I loved. It was just a simple $15 garnet ring from the mall. But I loved it. I lost it. And I told him about it. He said, don't look at me. I'm not going to buy you any ring. I'm like the wind baby. And I just kind of laughed. I was like, yeah, that's, that's okay, sure. And probably six months later, um, there was a present for me. He wanted me to know I, I had a present. So he handed me this little box and he said, it might not seem like much, but it costs more than the couch. <laughs> it costs more than the couch. That was my ring. Uh, it was this beautiful antique uh, Art Nouveau piece, uh, very tiny diamond and a beautiful tiger's eye. Beautiful. It sounds like such a lovely story of young love. You're, you're young, you're together. It's bohemian, as you said. You're doing the things you're enjoying. You're looking in each other's eyes. It, it sounds like a great start. Uh, it really was. It really was. And he invested so much of himself in the relationship and in me. He actually, one thing he said to me early on, we had all these devastating intellectual conversations that I loved. And he said, I'm going to be disappointed in you forever if you don't go to school. I'd avoided college up to that point. As mm. soon as he said that to me, the next day I went and took entrance exams at my J local JC and my parents were beside themselves. They've been trying to get me to go to college forever. Uh, so they were like, who is this guy? <laughs> um, wow. So yeah, he, uh, he started me uh, in school. Uh, that first year after school, we, we, moved, we moved from California uh, back East and I got into a Big Ten and started uh, undergrad in uh, um, 
uh, astronomy and physics. Well, how did, talk about the, the drinking escalating. Was, was, there, was there a point where his drinking and your drinking diverged um, or were you both kind of hitting it hard there for a while? Talk about how that morphed as time went on. Was there a maturing versus a not maturing? I kept up with John pretty well for many of our years together. Drinking was an identity for us. It was a way of life. It was not just our external social life, it was our internal social life. It was the number one gift idea for us. Uh, we constructed a bar. The, only, the first piece of furniture we ever built together was a bar. Um, so this was, this was a big part of, of who we were together. Uh, we, were, we were functional. I, I mean, I was, I was going to school. I was, I was doing well. Uh, he had a job. He, he was doing reasonably well in the job, doing well enough to take care of, take care of both of us. Um, he, uh, things didn't really uh, go too far south as far as I could tell until in about 2008, he was trying to quit smoking and our GP recommended Chantix. Uh, at the time, it was a fairly under, uh, poorly understood drug. Uh, so he, he agreed to take it. Actually, one of the issues with the Chantix is that it isn't, looking back on it, 10 years later, you realize it was never really tested on people with anxiety disorders, depression disorders, or addiction disorders. Hmm. I didn't so, know. Yeah, so um, he took the Chantix for, it's a 30 month period. And something really changed in him. He had been going to school. He, he, he was starting to pursue a, a master's in uh, management. He was about to quit his job. He was about to give up the school. Uh, I was worried that he might even be becoming suicidal and we figured out it was the Chantix. He actually stopped before they had taken the entire course. And we, um, we seem to think he was doing better after that. He managed to quit smoking at the end, never resumed smoking. But I remember him standing out, outside with a bourbon in his hand. Outside was always where he went to smoke. We had a balcony that he would go stand on and smoke and drink. This time he just had the bourbon in his hand. And he said to me at that point, it's like, it's like a good friend has died. Hmm. And I think looking back on it, I didn't realize what a, what a big event that was for his decline. I think that's when the decline really started. Wow. So did, did the drinking that that's fascinating. I did not know that about Chantix. Um, but fascinating, but not surprising, sadly. Um, did the, did the drinking, uh, increase at that point or was it, was it more a situation where the drinking was tied to sadness and what, did it get medicinal really quickly? Um, working on his, you know, depression, that kind of a thing. I, I think nothing happened really quickly mm. for 
for years. I think what happened is uh, anxiety and depression started to come to the forefront and we weren't really equipped to identify it as something that was related to alcohol. Um, it, it started with, we'd be going to the store, for example, and, and he'd suddenly have a panic attack. We'd be going out to hang out with friends and he'd have to, he'd have to stop the car to, you know, step out and breathe. We took a trip to Italy. This was our first big trip um, after I was out of school and we were kind of finding our way financially. We were getting our stuff together, starting to be able to do trips. We took a trip to Italy on our way to the airport. He had to get out of the car uh, and throw up on the side of the road. I drove the rest of the way to the airport. We had a great trip to Italy, but the first thing we did when we got to Italy was go find a bottle of booze. You could see the medicinal aspect of it starting to creep in. Like I need this and I need it now. Yeah. Uh, so. That, that's very interesting. That mirrors my experience in that, you know, the anxiety and the depression was getting worse. And I thought, well, I've got this one thing that I know of that eases the pain of the anxiety and depression. And I had no clue that it was also the thing that in my case was causing the anxiety and depression. In John's case, I don't know if it was the sole cause of it, like it was for me, but it certainly, it sounds like was making it worse. I mean, for people that have anxiety and depression before they start drinking, the alcohol makes it much, much worse. Um, so that it's fascinating that, you know, we're, we're roughly, you know, the same age and in different parts of the country, we're experiencing very, very similar things. Um, and, and your, you and John and Sherry and I, none of us knew that the alcohol was a contributing factor to the anxiety and depression. Right. And that's one of those untold things that needs to be told way, way more. Very sad. And there was um, the 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 big the big crash. So I sort of think of the the years between when we got married. We got married after we'd been together for ten years, um, and that that was that was a, that was a great time. That was a great ceremony. Uh, it was a great honeymoon. Things were still really good at that point. So things were things at that point were good enough that you couldn't really see the cracks starting to appear. Uh, things didn't really hit a crash point until uh, 2014, May of 2014. John's very good friend killed himself. John and I spent our seventh anniversary at his memorial. Oh, wow. I don't really believe much in omens, but that seemed like a bad. A, yeah, bad, yeah. a bad portent for things to come. And sure enough, uh, the drinking got out of hand really quickly. John was drinking in the morning, uh, vodka and cranberry, three, three if he could get it in. Was he hiding it from you or was this in front of you? No, this was in front of me. And I was starting to just kind of tried to communicate with him about what was concerning me about it. I, I knew drinking in the morning wasn't normal, wasn't healthy. I was aware that the bulk of his calories were actually coming from alcohol. He, he was having other health issues that were keeping him from eating. So really all, most of his caloric intake was 
vodka and cranberry juice. That was wow. very disturbing. That was very disturbing. And you could you could see a, a him. You know, he started to get argumentative. I, I I couldn't come through the door. I couldn't I couldn't get my jacket off. You know, coming home from work before we'd be in an argument. This was just completely a, a reversal. And within a year of his friend's suicide. Uh, he had his first hospitalization where we got the diagnosis that he had alcoholic cirrhosis and was actually in end-stage liver disease. Wow. What, what was that like when you first heard? Was that just a shock or because of the drinking you had witnessed, was it almost, did you almost anticipate it, whether you admitted it to yourself or not? What was it like? I was not shocked the the week before we we took him to the emergency room his eyes were yellow okay they were they were classic signs he had he had so many physical things that that could really only make sense when you when you thought about it from an alcoholic perspective i just realized that i didn't really understand anything about what alcoholic cirrhosis or end stage liver disease really was the first the first hospitalization uh, had a, a happy ending, we'll, we'll say. He stopped drinking. Uh, there's end-stage liver disease that you can actually manage. It doesn't, it's not an immediate death sentence. He, he seemed, it seemed like we had this really terrible, scary experience and then he got better and we had this chance at, and that, that, was, that was amazing. A, a year after his first hospitalization, we actually had a party. John's still alive, the party, everybody come, you know? So it was just like, we, we felt like that part was behind us. The, the fact you talked about how he, he quit drinking as a result of this initial diagnosis. And I'm imagining that in your mind, you're like, well, this is, I mean, this is obvious. He, he's quit drinking and he's got to quit forever. There's no, there's, there's no decision point here. It's not, it's not like in my case, when I didn't have uh, medical issues yet, and I could talk myself into drinking again, if I so choose, it, this is a, this is a yes or no question that's only got one, you know, survivable answer, right? So you're thinking we're over the hump and there's no going back and assuming that John has the same mindset. Is that fair to say? Yeah, to a very great extent, except here's, here's where there's the um, disconnect between what you, you and I might know with our experience with, with alcoholism at this point versus what society knows and what even the medical profession knows. So RGP uh, advised him that he didn't consider him an alcoholic. Hmm. That, you know, non-alcoholic beer with a little bit of alcohol in it isn't gonna be a big problem. Wow. Um, well, and uh, to be honest at this point, John had never really disclosed the extent of his drinking to anyone but me. So no one in a professional capacity could really, could really address him successfully could really but isn't, isn't that part of their training to it i mean i've always been told if if the doc acts and you and you say i drink i drink two drinks a night the doctor automatically just should assume you drink four plus drinks a night or wouldn't they pursue and question and push almost their patient because that's kind of their job right to figure out the real problem and really say i, I have a feeling you're not being honest with how much you're drinking you're not telling me because you don't get this way by drinking moderately I, I, I think that's, I think that's a really good question. And these are some of the lead ups to uh, the original uh, cirrhosis diagnosis. Uh, 
that that I think was more surprising to to medical professionals. But we also there's also a, a disconnect in care. So a GP isn't really someone who's qualified to really help you with hepatological issues. So you need to see a liver specialist. And our liver specialist was a little bit AWOL. John had gotten well enough to, you know, we were able to buy our first house together uh, after after that first hospitalization. Uh, so like I say, you know, they're really, even even with the, the, the non-alcoholic beer that I was aware of that had the point whatever percent per, per bottle, it seemed like a big deal. And he seemed like things were going well. And you know, like I say, we, we, we had enough normalcy that it looked all right. Um, but by April um, of 2017, so this was a year after the original hospitalization, almost a year, uh, I was upstairs taking a shower and I, I stepped out and I heard from downstairs, call an ambulance. She's, that's not funny. And he's like, no, call an ambulance. So I went downstairs and he'd had um, a ruptured esophageal varices, which is one of the things that happens when your liver stiffens in cirrhosis is blood gets diverted around it, around that organ, uh, so that vessels get distended and they rupture, particularly in, in the gastrointestinal tract and, and in the esophagus. So I went downstairs and it looked like it looked like the aftermath of the elevator doors opening in The Shining. It was just oh, blood my goodness. everywhere. So we called, yeah, we called the ambulance and the ambulance drivers came and got in and we, we took him to the hospital. And this was the start of uh, decompensation. Uh, that's, that's when your cirrhosis is, is no longer just affecting your liver. Other systems are starting to get involved. Uh, so... That was, that was the beginning of, a, of alarm bells going off. And boy, you just had no idea where that was going to go. Was the little uh, small half percent alcohol that's in the NA beers, was that responsible for the continued deterioration or was there drinking you weren't aware of? You know, Matt, I'm going to say there was drinking I wasn't aware of. And I wouldn't have said that at the time. I wouldn't have said that. I probably wouldn't have said that six months ago. <laughs> I'm I'm strongly suspicious that there was drinking I wasn't aware of. Yeah. yeah. So what so what are the doctors saying? What's the prognosis at this point? This is terrifying. This is terrifying. This is terrifying. And the prognosis is uh, stop drinking, go home, stop drinking. Okay. So goes home, stops stops drinking. But. Um, there, there's a, a symptom of something else coming down the road and, and it starts with a car accident uh, a month later. He's, he's fine, he's, he's, he's recovered. He's, he's not drinking, as far as I can tell. Gets him in this little car accident and just comes home the color of cement. He's just completely washed out and there's just something weird about his affect. He's just not, something's not right. Uh, and this kind of, this kind of couples with anxiety and depression that, that has never has never really abated since 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 the Chantix episode ten years before. Um, but he starts to his personality starts to change, um, and it starts with kind of like just weird confusion, and then there's kind of weird 
it, it's inappropriate behavior. You can't kind of call it inappropriate behavior, but when your spouse is, it's not really inappropriate. You know, it's kind of, and I've often thought if this, if this ailment were a communicable disease, this would be a brilliant transmission mechanism. Making your, making your subject horny. <laughs> This, this would be a, a perfect, you know, infection mechanism because that was basically like just suddenly his, his libido was just off the charts. He was taking yeah. pictures of my, my butt and posting it on, it, it, I was clothed, but you know, he's just taking pictures of my butt and posting it on Twitter and things like that. Oh, you're, you, you all wish you had this, this ass. <laughs> like, okay, we're really weird. Um, and this this turns out when you when you look at it this is um, hepatic encephalopathy, and it's a function of uh, blood being shunted around the liver. The liver's not clearing ammonia from the blood, and it's ending it's entering the brain. And it's actually causing brain damage. Wow! So we're in the early stages of hepatic encephalopathy. Um, when that's when that's diagnosed, what it like? At what point do the medical professionals tell you it's not just enough to abstain, even though it, looking back, it looks like he wasn't abstaining anyway, but at what point do we have to move to, you know, the, the thing you least want to hear? This is the, this is uh, my huge frustration with the, what I, I call it the medical industrial complex. There are so many cogs in it and none of them are aware what the other is doing. And sure. the ones that are there aren't really paying close attention to each individual case. John had done blood work. Um, so this would probably have been uh, early September of 2017. He'd had blood work done to try to figure out what was going on with his, his cognition. Uh, we didn't get the results for that blood work for a month. And the, the, the diagnosis from the hepatologist after four weeks was you have, you have hepatic encephalopathy. It's really bad and you should stop driving. Okay. So at this point, I, I was just beyond frustrated with the, the care we were getting from the hepatologist that we had. And I started reaching out. Uh, I, I, work with um, medical professionals in, in, my, in my professional career. Uh, so I started asking around, do you know anyone that I can talk to about my husband's liver situation? Uh, and a friend of mine hooked me up with um, a local university's chief of hepatology. We went to visit them and that first visit, uh, he, he, was, he was instantly talking about transplant. Uh, and that was something that, that, that we were completely blindsided because that hadn't, that hadn't come up at all in any of our conversations up to this point. And it wasn't just transplant, it was immediate transplant. We need to get you on the transplant list now and, and, here's, and here's what we need to do. And... That's so scary. We all know the value of a second opinion, but for, for all these other opinions, not even to mention the possibility and then this, this person their opinion is it's it's relatively an emergency. We got to do it now. That's so scary. Yeah, um, this is this is when you really appreciate that it's very difficult to navigate a, a medical system, certainly by yourself. But even as a even as a pair of you, even as a even as a relatively connected bright pair, you really <clears throat> you really are at the mercy of what information anyone who's seeing you is willing to to share with you or is willing to have enough creativity or, or insight uh, 
to think is is useful to, to share. Yeah. So. So you so you start talking uh, transplant um, shocks you out of the blue. Didn't expect it. Where do you go from there? Well, the the there were two shocks. There's a pair of shocks that come along because if you're not expecting transplant, that's 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 pretty big. Uh, and, and that's something you've got to get your head around. The next thing that they the, that this the transplant team or the the hepatological team uh, advised us was an option was a living liver donor option. And John's response is that's ridiculous. Who's going to give you a liver? You need your liver to live, don't you? And their response was, it grows back. And my my thought was immediately, hi, I'm here. I'm ready. Let's go. <laughs> no let's hesitation go. on your part. Let's, let's do this thing right now. Let's do wow. this now. Of course, that first intake is just, it's, it's a consultation. So you're at step one of a thousand steps. And the immediate interceding steps have to do with sobriety and have to do with being able to tap, pass talk screens. So... Is there a period of time? Do they want to see you sober for three months and you have to be able to prove that something like that? Yeah, that's right. That's right. Because otherwise they're just wasting the chunk of liver that they cut out of you and nobody wants to do that. That's right. That's right. Do no harm. That's where we come back to the do no harm. That's right. I think, I mean, talk a little bit about that. I think that that's a fascinating part of this story for the, for the medical professionals, for the doctors themselves, this in a way, they want to save John, but they're doing something to you that goes against every fiber of their being, every bit of training they've gotten. They're putting you in harm's way to save another person. That's not something taken lightly by the doctors, is it? It absolutely isn't. And, and it's something that I think we all know, we all know that, you know, people donate kidneys, livers. Uh, we, we know, we know cada- that cadaver transplants are, are, are common, uh, but we've all heard of living liver donors or living living donation in general. We know it's a thing, but I don't think anyone's really thought about that, how antithetical this is to everything that, that a doctor wants to do. So you, you, there is a huge process um, beyond getting John to a point which, which I could go, I could, I, I could take hours describing the process of trying to get him clean and honest and it, it actually ended up um with a, a a failed talk screen very late in our uh interaction with with our initial transplant team and they they basically refused to work with him anymore unless he was going to be willing to get into a, a rehab program and in, an inpatient rehab, John refused. And right after that, uh, we had another, we had another uh, gastric bleed event that was, was very scary. Um, the shining elevator again? No, this one, this one was uh, a little bit more subtle. He, he, uh, he started to turn blue so it was, it was mostly internal. Uh, there wasn't anything showing up yet. He started to turn blue and he started to not be able to walk and he started to not be able to stand upright. And this, this, this guy was just basically 
I can, I can assure you it's impossible to get to a hospital. I really had to work with him after four days of him sort of losing, losing all of his color, not being able to stand up uh, to get him to the ER. Um, they got him to the ER. Uh, he had a... Uh, he can't stand up and he's still reluctant to go get, get help? He, he doesn't, you know... That's he abstinence. He really doesn't want to... He doesn't want to have people helping him. That's a big thing with him. He doesn't want to have people looking at him. He doesn't want to have people asking him questions about what he's doing. That's a big thing. Um, but yeah, he really, the, the, the hatred for hospitals is a, is a, real, a real pathology for, for him. So yeah, four, four to five days after, after being blue, we, we get him in and his, uh, his hemoglobin's three. Uh, and I, I don't know, that doesn't mean much. It's hemoglobin's the protein that carries the oxygen through your blood. And in, in a normal person, it would be anywhere from, I don't know, 13 to 17. So it's three when he gets there and the, 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 the doesn't still that doesn't mean much to you, but there there's a we get him into the into a, a hospital room and a nurse is uh, advising uh, her relief uh, when her relief comes in and says, my God, he came in with a three. Have you ever have you ever seen a, a hemoglobin a three? And the, the relief nurse says, well, I saw it two once, but he was dead 24 hours later. Wow. So, this is with an earshot of you guys, obviously. Wow. Earshot. Yeah, yeah. My husband was listening to this. Yeah. So uh, after after uh, this whole process, he did end up having a rupture that that nearly cost him his life. Um, uh, but he was fortunately in the hospital, and they could address it right away. And that was a that was another shining episode. I, I called just as that as that was happening, and the nurse got on the line, and I'd never heard a nurse freaked out. He, he successfully freaked out a medical professional. So that's, that's impressive. Yeah, wow. Um, so at that point, I actually, I, I was actually actively seeking out uh, transplant teams that would touch us uh, and found one uh, who, who took us in. Uh, he, he was able to pass a talk screen. Uh, and this was the first time a, a hepatologist had seen him so this is probably, this is August of, of 2018 and a hepatologist proper hasn't seen him since October of the previous year. And this has been what's been killing me. I've been trying to, I have, I have taken on all of the, as his, as his cognition has declined, I've taken on all of the all medication. I've, I've, I've taken on appointments. I've taken on care and monitoring. I've taken on feeding. He, he doesn't, he doesn't eat. Uh, and I'm just, I'm desperate to get somebody else to look at him. And the hepatologist who, who looks at him points out the distended veins in his abdomen uh, and looks at me and says, he needs a transplant now. And I said, yes, I know. <laughs> uh, so we were able to, to move forward with that team. It, it felt like the end of a nightmare. It felt like I could finally, I could finally share what was going on. And I had someone who took it as seriously. And that actually allowed me to begin my process as a as a living liver donor. Uh, once once it was confirmed that you know he he was eligible to go, I could start my process, which is as you say, uh, not something that medical professionals take lightly. They they want you to know all the risks. They want you to know all of the possible things that could happen. Uh, so I actually, of course, I did some research and found found the handful of deaths. They're pretty spectacular, uh, and they and they they completely stop 
function of living liver uh, transplant programs and entire hospitals for entire areas. So they definitely take it seriously. Um, I, I got pro poked and prodded and tested and grilled and had psyche valves. I, I, I certainly had more uh, psychiatric e evaluation than um, John did. Mm -hmm. So they want a clear headed affirmative mm -hmm. from you over and over and over again to, mm -hmm. to make sure that you're not having second thoughts. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. So you get the, you know, you get the approval, you go through the process. One of the things that I think is interesting about your story, Barbara, is that immediately, because now John has had, you know, this dysfunctional liver for so long, and he all of a sudden has part of your very healthy and functional liver, it immediately improves his, his health while you struggle to recover from the surgery. Is that, is that right? That, that's right. And that was, that was what we were advised from, from the beginning of, of the, the intake process. You're this, this to John, you're going to feel better. And this to me, you're going to feel much, much worse. Mm -hmm. And that's true. And this is something that it's, it's tough to communicate. He'd been sick for so long and had been so, so critically sick that as soon as, as soon as healthy tissue takes the place of, of what was, what was in there. Um, yeah. The, the attending anesthesiologist, someone who was a lovely person who interacted between both of us. Uh, and she came in and told me, you could see, you could see the distended vessels just completely collapse and return to normal as soon, as soon as my liver went in. So, um, the funny thing is my parents had, had come down to take care of us because I, you know, I'm normally in the caretaker mode, but obviously donating liver, you're kind of out of, out of that mode for a while. So uh, my parents came down for the surgery and my mom took pictures of John and I on the same day. And the, the picture of me, I'm out, I'm out, out, out. The picture of John is John upright in bed, smiling. And I think he probably had burritos that night. <laughs> it wasn't the first night, but it was, it was probably within, within two nights. He was, he was like a brand new person. You know, end stage liver uh, cirrhosis, mm -hmm. which in your mind is, well, this has got to be enough. This has got to stop the drinking. It, it doesn't. You reach the point through all of this trauma and I mean, I just can't even imagine what it's like to go through this as the spouse. But then you get to another finish line, you cross another finish line where he's got part of your liver. So it's a hopeful day. He's feeling better. And you've got to be thinking, well, that's got to be enough to, to convince him not to drink. It's not even just him. He's got part of me in him now. Mm -hmm. He's got to have respect for that. Mm -hmm. What happens next? Before the surgery, I got asked a question, how would you feel? This is the medical staff. This is one of my psyche valve questions. How would you feel if he drank? And I looked at them and I said, well, I don't know. Cause I'm not there. I couldn't, I, I, I can't, I can't begin to answer that question. And for some reason they felt like that was the same answer. I feel like it was the same answer. 
But from that point, I actually referred to this, this period that was coming up as the great after. There had been this terrible before, but then there was going to be this, this great after. And it was, it was wide open. It was full, full, of, full of possibility. And the first, we were, we were absolute poster children for a successful uh, living liver donor transplant. It was a whole new relationship. It was, it hadn't been like this in, in such a long time. He was back. He was smiling. He was laughing. He was, he was uh, cooking food. He was out at the grill. He was socializing. He was just all, all new. He'd started writing. Uh, he'd always been, a, you know, wanted to write and just never really had time. Started to write. And I was editing his stuff. It was just, it was just amazing. And you know, it takes looking back at it to, to see where these things start coming apart at the seams. I, I suspect now that it had probably been, I went back to work. Uh, the surgery was in November of, of 2018. I went back to work in, um, at the end of January, 2019. And I suspect <clears throat> he was scheduled to start going back. He had been working from home. He, he kept a job through all of this. This is the amazing thing. Yeah. Wow. He went back, he was scheduled to go back to work physically in, in April. Um, and I think, I think a dread in him started building about this. I think he really started to get a real, uh, almost like a triggering thing. He didn't want to do that. That was not something he wanted. And I, I, I suspect that probably within four months of surgery, he'd started drinking again. And his personality really changed. His personality really Without seeing it, you could see it. Without physically seeing the alcohol, you could see the impact. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that so so he was he was working from home, so he could he could hide it. You know, I wasn't I wasn't here. I wasn't monitoring him. You know, every every hour of every day. So it's easy to sneak. It's easy to hide if if you know you're separate during hours of the day. But um, yeah, um. I could tell something was wrong by April and his substance abuse counselor had, her, her, her dad had died. And so she hadn't been around for, for a while. And I actually, I reached out to her. Uh, I had actually connected them because I was the one who was in charge of this stuff. So I, I was actually the one who found her and, and, and got him going to her uh, back before the surgery. Um, and they, they'd had a good, they'd had a good relationship. And I, I, I texted her and said, I, I'm so sorry to hear about your dad. And I, I hate to contact you, but I, I'm, I'm desperate. I, you, you've really, you've really got to see John. I, I hope you're, I, I knew that she was back in town. Uh, and I, I just said, if, if you've got any time, please, please, um, help me set up an appointment with him. Um, and this was this was after after a, a really unpleasant argument. We'd started arguing again, uh, started having really big fights. So it would just sort of come out of nowhere and just kind of ambush me. Um, so the the argument that we'd had is, I've been alone all my life. You don't understand. You you don't understand what it's like to to be me. And that was a that was a shocking thing to hear. Uh, as someone by that point who'd been his partner for almost a quarter of a century. I was stunned to hear that 
he, he felt like he was alone. So that was really, that was really part of my reason to, to reach out to her. Um, um, but the, probably within 12 hours of that, we were arguing again and the argument was, you've never wanted me to, you've never wanted me to see her. You've always tried to keep me from, from seeing this counselor. And I was just like, I can't even, my, in my professional life, I work with uh, research and development for virtual reality applications. Um, and I think a lot about how your perception of reality is, is something that you can't, I, I, I'm, I'm, I've struggled with this because he has these real ideas about, about who I am that aren't real. But yeah. they're real time, and it's it's just it's so difficult to know how to how to address that with someone who who feels like they're alone, who feels like they've never they've never had anyone, who feels like there's no love in the house, who feels like I haven't worked to help him. There's another thing he said: "You've never lifted a finger to help me." The story of the time you went out on a I think it was a Sunday night to. To, to get something. I can't remember why you said he went out, but then when he came back, you had to help him out of the car. Talk about that. That's a great story. Yeah. Um, he, I, I, I caught him drinking uh, in, in June of, oh God, that's 2019. I caught him drinking. Um, so, so that was out in the open. Um, he'd started doing um, meetings after that. And that was, that, that, that went well at first. It seemed like it was, it was effective. Um, but again, there, there, there just came a time where I, something was wrong. He, he wasn't, I, I knew I wasn't being treated honestly. Uh, so one Sunday night he said, I'm going to go to a meeting at seven o'clock. I'm going to go to a meeting. And I said, okay. The thing is, is that I've been so involved in all of this for so long. I, I, I know there's no meeting in our area Sunday on Sunday at seven o'clock at night. So I just kind of, I, I let it go. I, I convinced myself that there's, there's one I don't know about, right? Clearly, you know, the, the, there are all kinds of these meetings around. I'm sure I just don't know about it. Okay. So, he comes back an hour and a half later, pulls into the driveway, and nothing happens. We, you know, we're waiting for him at the door. Uh, the dogs are, you know, they start barking, and then they're just confused because there's a car out there and nobody's coming in. Um, after after probably about 15 minutes of just sitting there, you know, wondering what's going on, I I, I go out and I I tap on the window. He's he's sitting there. Sure enough, no no radio, no phone, no nothing. He's just sitting there, and I. Uh, I get him to open the door. He opens the door and I ask him, you know, what's, what's up? Uh, and he's kind of, he's kind of slurring. He, he, uh, he seems, he seems pretty out of it, but he's, he's clearly upset. So anyway, I, I ask him if he wants to come in and I, you know, he get him out of the car and bring him upstairs. I'm positive. I'm positive 
there, there's a part of me that knows he's been drinking. And I ask him if he's been drinking and he says, no, I'm just really tired. And that's something that that's, that's a con that's a common refrain when I've asked if he's drinking and he has been, but doesn't want to admit it. No, I'm tired. So I just said, okay. And I brought him upstairs and I put him, put him to bed and he just, he, he was just so agitated. He, he, didn't realize what he was describing, but to me, it was clear he was describing a bar fight. He was trying to tell me that he was describing something that had happened at an AA meeting. Sure. And he was clearly describing a bar fight. Uh, again, there, there, it's amazing how your brain works when you're just kind of like, okay, maybe this is just a really out of hand AA meeting. I want to trust your husband. These are natural feelings you've got. They, they are, they are. And, and it's amazing. It's amazing what a beating that instinct will take and stay intact. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I, he's, he's describing this and I, and he just says, look, I, I, I don't want to do, I don't want to do AA meetings anymore. I, I, I don't want to do it. They're bad for me. I, I'm not, I'm not recovering. And I, I, you know, I, I held his hand. I could tell he was upset. And I felt bad. I, you can't look at that level of agitation and not feel some kind of some kind of empathy, even even at this even at this stage. Uh, so I held his hand and I said, oh, "Okay, uh, do do you want me to help you find another another kind of meeting?" And he just he just broke something, just split in him, and he just started yelling, "Being married to you is the worst thing ever. It's it's the." fucking worst thing ever i it's 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 hell and holding my hand the whole time never let go of my hand the whole time he's he's yelling at me you're you're the angry ghost who lives in the walls you're the angry ghost who lives in the walls you're the angry ghost who lives in the walls never never even heard me just try to say I, i'm your wife uh, and this was this was the point where I realized he just really for him I was I was not only I, I veered between a monster and a fictional being in his mind. That was that was pretty that was pretty tough. Well, you're not even he's not even taking it out on you. I mean, he's so uh, far far gone into whatever realm we go to when we drink like that. You know, Sherry and I have talked a lot about how people talk about alcohol being a truth serum. And so when I would get vile and mean and nasty and say awful things to her, you know, it, that was so hard to forgive even when I was apologizing the next day or the next week, because she felt like, you know, well, they say alcohol brings out what you really, really believe in the deep, dark recesses of your mind. But what we've come to learn about that is sure. Alcohol loosens lips you know, when you've got a little buzz on and you've got a secret that you know you shouldn't tell, but you want to tell. But the place that it takes us to that allows us to say those things, those aren't, I mean, that's his own internal demons that he's fighting. And you just happen to be the only one in the room to be the punching bag. And I, I think it's so interesting, a part of that story that he continues to hold your hand through this. He's, he's so intoxicated. And, and at this point, as you mentioned earlier, there might have just been so much permanent damage done to his brain function that he doesn't realize that he's showing you tenderness at the same time as he's ripping you apart. Mm -hmm. he, like his hand isn't connected to his mouth anymore. That's, mm -hmm. that's fascinating.
Yeah. Yeah. So, so t- talk, talk us through, what are you thinking about not only hopefulness for his survival or lack thereof, but hopefulness for the survival of the marriage or lack thereof? Like, where is your mindset right now? My mind was everywhere. Uh, it's, it's hard to, I, I thought my, my idea about our relationship, even, even as, as we were going through this, is that this, this is going to work. There was just no other, there was just no other option. I I couldn't imagine it not working. when we when we first moved when we first moved east from from California, um, a, a friend who, who of his who met me for the first time said to me, uh, she said, "I just I, I want I want to tell you this. I just hope someday I meet someone who talks about me the way John talks about you." And I've carried I carried that with me for all of these years. That's always been my thought of, of what we were what we were as a couple and what we could what we could what we could withstand um so there was just there was just never uh, any <laughs> i i say never and like i say my mind is everywhere I, I, by this point you know i've i've started doing codependency work which is extremely frustrating because there is there is this element of a, a, a co a co responsibility a co sharing of an addiction that's extremely extremely agitating I guess things are going downhill he's yeah. he's, he's on his second liver but he's abusing that second liver and that that's yeah. becoming you know it, the denial the 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 denial part I think is interesting because in a situation like this, not only is John in, in some form of denial that, that he thinks he can drink or he doesn't care what happens if he drinks, but you, you are also in some form of denial because you're thinking that you can still yank this thing out of the ditch. And when does, because you want to, because of what, what your, what his friend said early on, because of how the, I mean, I think it's great that you shared at the beginning of, of our discussion about how it was in those early days so that people can understand what you loved about him and, mm-hmm. and how it really was special and magic and, and he was the one for you, it, at, it seemed at the time. But at some point, your mind has to make this shift from, uh, okay, we can, we can still salvage this, he can be saved, to, you know, to save myself, I have to, I have to make a change and I have to move on. When does that happen? What's that like for you? Um, it's a it's a it's a tough process, and I think especially by the time you're you're in it up to you know a quarter of a century plus a liver, you're kind of like, well, now I really can't give up. That isn't even like doing the living living liver transplant isn't even like you're okay. That's it. That's that's where I stop. You're like, okay, that's actually where I start. That's actually where I begin. And now I'm really, I'm really responsible. I'm really on the hook. Somebody needs to take care of my liver. <laughs> if he's not going to do it, I can't just abandon it. I can't abandon an actual piece of my own flesh, even if it isn't another 
even if it is in another body. So that, in a way, like I say, it didn't, it didn't feel like I've done enough. It felt like there's got to be more. It, wow. it, I've got to, I've got to do more. I talked, uh, I, I talked about marriage counseling. I got a marriage counselor. We went to marriage counseling. He, he came to our first marriage counseling session a half an hour late. We had to, we had to ditch to the, to the next session. So I, I, he, he stopped seeing his substance abuse counselor. I, 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 you know, made demands about getting another, another substance abuse counselor that, that wasn't working. I, I, I made demands about more meetings. I, you know, I went through, went through a lot of different things and we, we've talked about hope as this, this good thing. It's good to have hope. It's, it's useful. It's helpful. You want, you want to have hope. And I, I know I, I've used this quote before. Grief is an amputation, uh, but hope is an incurable hemophilia. You bleed and bleed and bleed. And I have, that's another thing that, that sort of hangs on me like a mantra. The last hopeful thing that, that happened between us happened right as uh, our state was going into lockdown in March of, of this past year. And we, oh God, things had just gotten so bad. After, after the first round of drinking, I had, uh, I, I, I stopped intimacy. It was the first boundary I ever, I ever really set up with him. I, I, I told him we weren't going to be able to do that until I had some sense that I could trust him. So this, that, was, that was nine months before this, the, the lockdown started. And one of the early days of lockdown, he handed me a box from Amazon. And I said, what's this? He said, it's a present for you. And I opened it up and it was a breathalyzer. And he said, you can, you can ask me to, to use this anytime you're, you think I'm drinking. And I'll, 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 I'll tell you right now, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. I'll agree to that. And I cried and I hugged him. It was the last time I hugged him. Two weeks later, he went out and uh, did a curbside pickup of, of booze and brought it in the house and hid it. I found the receipt and I kept the receipt. I have the receipt still. I know this is an unfair question, but I, I'm hopeful that you'll try anyway. So, because even as the alcoholic in my relationship with, with Sherry, this, this, where John has taken this goes to a place that I, you know, I can't understand. And I'm wondering, since you lived with him and you spent so much time with him, do you have any insight into, he's on his second liver and he's got to know that the way the transplant system works. I mean, I've never been involved in the transplant system and I know there is no third liver. You can't drink away a second liver and have the medical professionals welcome you in to, you know, to try again. So he's got to know that he's drinking himself to death, but it's not stopping him. I mean, is there any you know, recognition of that on, or is this just cognitive dissonance? Like how, how can he move through life knowing that he's killing himself? Like literally killing himself, not at some obscure, maybe someday kind of a thing. He's literally killing himself. That's a question that I asked him a, a, a multitude of times uh, in different ways at different levels of volume, different levels of agitation. Um, the answer 
was pretty much always, I was ready to die. And, and that would usually follow with kind of a flash of anger. I didn't want the liver. Hmm. You gave me something I didn't ask for. Wow. He's, he's so, a lot of us, myself included, have trouble accepting help from people. You talked about that earlier in this discussion. Mm-hmm. He's so uncomfortable with help from others that he can say that to you. His wife stood by his side for all these years and gave him part of your body. And he can turn that on you. I didn't want this. You made me do it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think um, there's no simple answer to that question. Like, how how can he do this? Why is anyone suicidal? And and is it even active suicidal ideation? Is it just is it just the the end stage of addiction? Is it just, I don't care. Is it, it's impossible to say. I recommend the movie, um, When a Man Loves a Woman for the situation that Sherry and I went through. For the situation that you're describing, uh, Leaving Las Vegas is the movie. When Nicolas Cage, have you seen it? Uh -uh, Uh-uh, Nicolas Cage goes to Las Vegas to die. He knows he's not gonna beat it. And he goes there to drink himself to death. Yeah. And, you know, watching huh. that movie, it's, it's, it's brutal to watch, and she lived but, it. but you're, you lived it. Yeah. You're describing it. And I think f- when I think f- from knowing him and understanding him uh, to the extent that I could, and I think there's always, there's always for an addict, there is always a boundary and there, there probably always was a part of him that I didn't know. And that he kept that way. I think guilt has absolutely consumed him after after the surgery initially he he was able to and, and I've, I've told, told you this story you know i'm just standing in the kitchen doing dishes thinking how funny it is this is after the surgery you know i've got this you know 13 inch scar it's really sexy on my abdomen who would have thought that life would just kind of go i'm just living in my suburban house my little suburban life my little suburban dogs and it's so normal and my husband comes up behind me and says just out of the blue, thank you for my life. And I think at that point, oh, you are mistaken. This is not normal and this will never be normal again. This is always going to be a huge, a huge thing. And in the initial phase before, before he, before the alcohol called him back to it, before his true love, you know, came back on the scene, I think he could manage that he could say thank you and mean it and it felt it felt good and that felt like enough but i think once the the poison started back in once the 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 self talk that you have when you're poisoning yourself starts back in i i don't think he could conquer the sensation that he'd never be able to pay me back a, a neighbor once brought us a bottle of wine and he immediately, and this is before, this is, you know, the, the neighbor, you know, knows we don't drink with this anyway. So John went out and bought a bottle of wine to give to the neighbor just because, you know, no, no debts, no, no. Got to reciprocate. I don't, I don't owe you. I don't owe you anything. I don't want to owe you anything. And it's on that level. It's, it's at that, it's at that tiny level. So by the time you're up at an organ, what do you do? So, so the alcoholic compensation turns into, uh, okay, so one of the accusations that was leveled at me was, you're the reason I'm an alcoholic. Mm. It's your fault I'm an alcoholic. 
and so that's I, that one makes sense, right? You can understand that if it's if it's my fault that he's an alcoholic, then I owed him the liver, right? He yeah. would never have been an alcoholic in the first place, which is kind of funny because I think back to early on in our relationship, one of the first things that he said to me, we weren't even we weren't even in a relationship. We were still buddies and kind of developing our flirtation. He, he said, I just hope medical science can keep up with my debauchery. Wow. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And he also, he also admitted early on that he had a strongly addictive personality. So, I mean, I, it's not like I didn't know what I was getting into. You just have no idea. You have no idea the depths that that can, that can reach. Jokes early on, you don't expect them to be so grounded in reality. The, the, other, the other joke was, and this was a joke that he had with a, a friend of his was, we just need to make sure that there's a liver waiting for us. We'll need another liver. Yeah. Wow. It doesn't, that's so, that's so far-fetched, you know, when you're 25 and, and, and you know, having your mimosa marijuana brunch, you know, <laughs> that, that's, that's on another planet. You can't even imagine that that's your future. Wow. So you get to the point where even your, you know, ultra human uh, willingness to sacrifice and be the caregiver, it's, it's not going to work. It's not going to save him. And you've got to save yourself um, because you, you are now, you are now recently divorced. Walk us through that process. The, Lockdown is, I suspect, for a lot of people, like a, a microscope of, you know, looking at relationships. You, know, you just can't escape certain things. Sure. Um, that was certainly true for us. And it was certainly true for me understanding how much he relied on. He'd been working from home for years. Uh, how much he relied on my not being around to watch him do what he does. Uh, and the resentment that built around my being here and having an opinion about what, what he did. And then the games that kind of started with, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not drinking, even though he clearly was. And I, all I had to do was just kind of wait for him to, you, I, I can always spot, you know, once we, once we got to this point, post, post breathalyzer, I didn't even need the breathalyzer. I, I, I never asked him to use it, but I could always tell. Sure. Um, <clears throat> And all I needed to do was just wait for him to pass out and go find, go find the booze. And the funny part of that was, is you just had to find a, a, <laughs> a low energy barrier hiding place. It has to be someplace easy to get to. And those are, those are, you know, I don't have to even dig. I just have to go someplace that's like in a direct line of sight where he's sitting at some point. And there it is. And did it and confronted him with it and did it and confronted him with it and did it and confronted him with it and did it and dumped it, dumped it, dumped it. And there was just one morning, the night before I, I could tell he was, he was drinking, it was Friday night. I got to the, I, I got, went to go to bed and just said, how do I do this? I got him down right to the morning. I just said, I'm exhausted. I need some sleep. Uh, I'm just going to get some sleep and I'll find it in the morning. So I got up that Saturday morning, went downstairs, found it. First place I looked big, big liter bottle of uh, uh, Tito's vodka, high-end vodka, nice stuff. Um, and I looked at it and it was the same. I, I, I 
every time I found a bottle, it was like finding the first bottle. It was like the first time you realized that he was, that he was lying about it. it. And that feeling never went away. That, that horrible sense of being lied to never went away. And there was something about that morning that I just looked at it and I said, this is the last time I'm going to do this. Wow. And I've friends who've watched me go through this process and family who've watched in astonishment and despair have said, you'll know, you'll know when, when the time comes, you'll know when you're ready. And I've always been a little frustrated with that. because I'm like, I need data. Give me like, how, how do I know I'll know? <laughs> and now I'm in a situation where I'm really, I'm telling people, no, it's just going to, you're going to be there and you will know. Uh, so I walked up the stairs and dumped out the booze and he came downstairs, uh, you know, hours later, cause it was a Saturday morning. He slept in, Hey, how are you doing? And I said, I found the booze and he was ready for any number of the discussions that we've had, you know, for the rest of the lockdown about what we need to do, counseling, substance abuse counseling, therapy, all these other things. And I just said, I'm calling a lawyer. And he just set his coffee cup down, turned around and walked off. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. He knew too. I think he'd been waiting. Uh, I'm, I'm the plaintiff on the divorce, but he'd left. He was gone. Yeah. So... So you went through that process, you extracted your lives from each other after how many, you're in your third decade together at this point, right? Uh, we, we'd been together for 23 years by the time yeah. we final, yeah. Yeah, so all this time, and, so, and, and the divorce is still fresh as we do this recording, mm -hmm. but what's, What's the overriding sensation for you now, Barbara? Is it, is it relief? Is it frustration? How do you feel? There's a, there's a lot of relief. Um, you don't realize, <laughs> it's, it's a terrible analogy, but I, I think often of the frog that doesn't know it's being boiled alive if you increase the temperature slowly enough. Right. That's what life had been like. And like I say, you, you kind of have to, look back with very unforgiving lenses to see the very gradual decline and the and what you can sort of the muscles that you build that kind of allow you to take this on and take this on so so once once it was over and it was funny i i i still see the marriage counselor that that we John ended up firing in, in a fit of peak um, is someone I still see as, as, a, as my therapist. And one of the things that she said to me, it's great to have her because she's got, she, she knows him very well. And she, so she, she knows the situation. She actually saw it. She interacted with it in a way that a lot of therapists wouldn't have that, that knowledge. And one of the things that she said to me is your voice is different. You, you, you sound different when you speak. You sound like before there was just this mania. There was this thing that you couldn't get out. There was just, uh, so there is a huge relief, but there is also, and this is something that I've, I've talked about a lot, is just this urgent desire to be heard. Uh, like I could never, I, I, John never heard me and, and snuck off, you know, moved out without ever hearing me. One of the last things he said to me, uh, our last fight was, 
there were things that I need to clear up, things that had happened. Uh, and he said, well, you should have, you should have, you should have said something a long time ago. And that was, <laughs> you're going to get a punch in the throat. <laughs> that was, that was, that was about as raw angry as I, as I, I think I've ever been. I've, I've, I've turned myself inside out to talk to you and you haven't listened. You know, alcoholism is such a selfish disease and it's selfish, not only in the active addiction portion, but it's selfish in the recovery portion because we're either drinking and trying to hide it and trying to justify it in our own mind, or we're trying to get healthy and it's really hard. And I, I don't mean to, you know, to make it sound like it's easier than it is just because I, I made it over the hump and maybe it was long enough ago that I don't remember how hard it was. I remember how hard it was. It's, it's, it takes everything you've got, but at the same time as you're either drinking and hiding it and being deceitful and trying to justify it, or you're trying to work on yourself to get more healthy, that consumes all of your bandwidth, it, it seems. And between it consuming all your bandwidth and us just not knowing any better, we are like incapable of listening to the, the person that's closest to us who's struggling too. We just assume, you know, it's not impacting your biological health. So, you know, you must be fine if this is all about me. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, that's probably the most common thing that we hear from people and that we experienced ourselves is exactly what you just said. You know, you can go years and years and years and in your case, just never be heard because the person that you're in relationship with just doesn't have any room left to listen. And it's so sad. Yeah, so it sad. really is. It really is. But there's, you know, there's, there's hope for partners and, and hope doesn't always look like staying together. And that's something that I, I've, I've struggled with in, in reaching out to groups of, of married uh, couples who are going through this process. Uh, I don't, I don't want to be doomed you know, I don't want to be the person who who uh, tells you it's not possible because I do think it is. Uh, it just isn't always possible, and it's really it's it's vital to give yourself the space to make the decisions that you need to make, um, and it's easier said than done. This this podcast was based originally around. Sherry and I and our relationship and recovering the relationship. And I think a lot of people who listen and a lot of people who join our Echoes of Recovery group do so with the idea that we, you know, we've got the magic bullet and we can, we can tell you the secret to make it work. And the answer, I mean, I just can't think of a better, what is that? 10 words to use to, de to describe it. Hope doesn't always look like staying together. I guess that's eight words, but you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, you've got to find health and healing for yourself. And in some cases that can be done in within the union, in some cases it cannot. Mm -hmm. And you are living proof of that because I've known you for a long time. And uh, certainly we've reconnected much more closely in, in, in more recent times, but you are a shining example of what health is supposed to look like. I know you've got inner struggles and things that you still battle and, and, I mean, how could you not after having gone through the trauma that you've gone through, but you are definitely moving the right direction now, Barbara, and it's such a, a joy to witness and, and to have you, you know, have us be a part of each other's lives again. So 
thank you for coming on and, and talking about this and being so honest and sharing not just your experience, but what you've learned from your experience. Super, super helpful. Thanks. Thanks for, thanks for having me. And thanks for, thanks for hearing me. And thanks for helping me have a voice. Uh, I appreciate the work that both you and Sherry are doing. I think it's really important. Thank you for the courage to share what you have to say, because uh, this isn't in the privacy of, you know, I'm, we're not your husband and this isn't in the privacy of your house. This is a lot of people are going to hear this and a lot of people who, who are, are struggling to figure out what to do are going to hear your story and it's going to, it's going to help them make the decisions that are necessary in their lives. So thanks so much, Barbara. Thank you. Thank you. For my wife, Sherry Salis, and for our lovely guest today, Barbara, my name is Matt Salis, and we thank you for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast. Mm-hmm.